Biblical femininity. The last 100 years, at least in the Western world, has been devastating to the concept of femininity. In a very similar way, it has been devastating to the concept of masculinity. The advent of the ironically mislabeled movement of feminism, especially in what we would call second and third wave feminism, have crippled society's understanding of what women are supposed to be. And remember, as we step into this concept, I'm going to keep reminding you, as we step into this topic, as with every topic, what we are speaking about is an outworking of design. I'm not talking to you this evening about what tradition has dictated that women ought to be. We're talking about what God has designed biblical femininity to be. We're talking about those elements of God's design whereby we see what God teaches us about what a woman in Christ ought to be. We're going to talk this evening about how God has made women and so allow the teachings of the Word of God to mold our understanding about what femininity is and unto what our ladies should aspire. And I want to be careful this evening to distinguish between the teaching on being a wife and a mother and the teaching on biblical femininity. Very much so like last week where on biblical masculinity there was a great amount of overlap with, um, with the, the, whole, the role of the husband and really both of them focused on a very similar ideal which is leadership. We're going to see a very similar thing this evening. There are many virtues of women that are heightened when considered through the lens of the wife and the mother, but biblical femininity speaks of those attributes that transcends a woman's married status, even if it considers, uh, even if it is considered through that lens in any number of occasions in the scriptures. And that is what I hope for us to glean from our time together this evening. What does it mean to be a a biblical woman, to be a woman who is aligned with what the scriptures teach about women? And of course, if we were to sum all of that up into one word, the word that we would use is the word virtue. Before we begin, I want to be very clear and deliberate about some things. What we're going to find this evening is that as I mentioned, biblical mas- last week, biblical masculinity and biblical femininity carry about in them really many of the same attributes. They're only guided into different applications and outcomes. Last week in our time, as we explored biblical masculinity, the principles directed men toward a recognition that God has designed men to be in positions of leadership and to implement the characteristics of manhood as it relates to leadership, as it relates to submitting those characteristics, the, the, the vibrancy and the, the aggressiveness and, and the impulsiveness and, and, and all of those elements that, that we might regularly attribute to boyhood and bringing about into them a sound mind, a level of maturity and, and, and a degree of meekness that can then divert all of those characteristics of men into something useful for the Lord. Men are selfless as leaders. Men are yielded as leaders. Men are meek as leaders. And what we find within the scope of biblical femininity is that these attributes are given in relationship to submission. Whether you're talking about a husband or not, we're talking about these attributes given, being given in relation to submission under God-ordained authorities. And again, we're talking here about design. 
To this end, we must understand that just as biblical masculinity is filtered often through the lens of leadership in the Word of God, biblical femininity is filtered through the lens of submission in the Word of God, even in those instances where we see women outside of the bounds of a husband, we still see biblical authority intact. And we must be unapologetic as it relates to these lenses because it is what the Word of God presents. I cannot present biblical feminine virtue without preventing it within the context of a woman rightly relating herself to authority. Just as I cannot present biblical masculinity without relating itself to men's natural expectation that they lead. And so we begin with the first characteristic that I would like us to look at as it relates to biblical femininity from Proverbs 31. And the word I'm going to use to start us off is the word faithful. When we seek to define virtue, we naturally turn to the passage of Scripture that begins with, who can find a virtuous woman, right? For her price is far above rubies. That naturally takes us to Proverbs 31. And if I were to describe the Proverbs 31 woman simply, it would be the word faithfulness. We see any number of attributes throughout Proverbs 31. And I'm not going to exposit Proverbs 31 tonight. I'm going to jump around a little bit. But as it relates to the various attributes we see of a woman in Proverbs 31, uh, I, I think that the, probably the best simple term to use would be faithful. In Chapter 31, verses 10 through 12, the Bible says this, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that she have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Here we see the Proverbs 31 woman, and of course this is a married woman in Proverbs 31, and we see her in relation to her husband. As we observe her faithfulness, we see it in the context here of trust. A trustworthy woman one who does her authority good and not evil all the days of her life. A woman of constancy in character whom others can rely upon. A woman of stability. A woman of faithfulness. Now, last week, our first characteristic of biblical masculinity as we studied it was actually the same idea, that a man who is selfless and who is yielded. Uh, there's a very similar idea to that, and this is not necessarily by accident as we look scripturally. Biblical femininity speaks toward a woman who places others above herself. This theme continues as the text continues. I skip to verse 13, where the Bible says in Proverbs 31, 13 through 16, she seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ships. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night. She giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maiden. She considereth a field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hand, she planteth a vineyard. Uh, we see here a woman of Industry. We see here a woman of initiative laboring under the leadership of her household for its benefits and for its increase. And let me attempt to carefully add a little bit of clarity at this juncture. Notice already how important we find the idea that the woman's goodness, 
her labors, her faithfulness are directed toward the success and increase of her household, the household under which she operates. In this case, she's laboring under the authority of her husband. Proverbs 30 on would go on to speak of her faithfulness at running the household, at making clothes for winter, at getting the best deals on wares, uh, some practical outworking of the fact that she is devoted to increasing her husband's holding and the wellness of her husband's family. A tremendous example, as we talked about when we talked about wives, of, of true submission, which is not that she is cowed, but rather that she has aligned her heart, her goals, her ambitions, her success with her household and with her husband. But here I want to divert into a couple of examples of this kind of character of a woman. And then we'll come back to Proverbs chapter 31 a little bit later. And first, naturally, I think as we talk about women of virtue, and there's any number of women that we can go to, but we go to Ruth. Last week we went to Boaz, right? As we, saw, we talked about men and biblical masculinity. And Boaz, we said, was one of the men in the Bible that, that the Bible called a mighty man of valor, a gibor chayil, right? And that's that Hebrew phrase, those two words, which regularly is translated mighty man of valor. In Boaz's case, because we see no record of him being a fighting man, uh, it's translated mighty man of wealth. But either way, the idea is that this is a man who has, who has integrity, who has strength. This is a, biblical, a biblically defined man. So we go to Ruth and we look at kind of the other side of that coin within this very unique and very important case study in the Old Testament. In Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we read this. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. And the name of the one was Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Kilian died, also both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So we read this account. Naomi moves from Israel to Moab with her husband during a time of famine. And they take their two sons with them. Her husband dies. Her two sons take wives of the women of Moab. Then her two sons die, and she is left by herself with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She then chooses to return to Israel, hearing that there is again bread in the land. She's going back to Bethlehem, Judah. And she encourages her young daughters-in-law to stay in Moab and to find new husbands there. Orpah agrees. She kisses her mother-in-law and she goes back. Ruth refuses. Instead, she says this, verses 16 through 18. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die. 
and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. Now, in any number of times I've heard this passage preached, there's always a very strong emphasis on this idea, thy God will be my God, right? The, the, the concept there of, she says, your God is going to become my God. And indeed, it is there, right? We do see that. But notice what Ruth is actually saying here. She is determined that she will stay with Naomi, love Naomi, provide for Naomi, and die where Naomi dies, right? She is attaching herself to Naomi, to her mother-in-law, to her husband's mother, and verse 18 says it best that Ruth was steadfastly minded to go with her. Ruth exhibits a constancy in character and of mind that she is going to think of her mother-in-law above herself. She's faithful. She's faithful. And it's not just her being faithful to her mother-in-law here, but who is she actually being faithful to if not her deceased husband? This loyalty is not just manifest in presence with her. She is going to do well for the one who, by virtue of her loyalty to her deceased husband, was a part of her household. She was going to increase her household. She was going to bring about the good of her household. And not just the good through presence. She didn't just go to Bethlehem, Judah, and sit down on the couch next to Naomi all day. So we continue to read. Verses 2 through 3 of Ruth 2. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech, who was, of course, Ruth's father-in-law who had been deceased, Naomi's husband. So Ruth returns with her mother and she immediately sets herself to work, getting the provision necessary to take care of herself and to take care of her mother. Naomi is a, among her kin now, right? She's back in Ephrathah. She's back in Bethlehem, Judah. And yet it is her daughter-in-law who has yielded her freedom and priorities to care for her. I find that interesting. That Naomi is back among her family. And it's her daughter-in-law that's the one that's caring for, for them. Now this garners the attention of Boaz, in whose field Ruth is working. And he inquires to his servant regarding her. And notice the reputation of Ruth among the workers in the field, beginning in verse 6 of Ruth 2. And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little 
in the house. So this woman comes back with Naomi out of Moab. She has every opportunity to marry a guy in Moab, to stay there, to stay among her family, to go back to her family, to get married in Moab among her people. Instead, she binds herself to Naomi. She binds herself to the household of her deceased husband. She goes back with Naomi. They're among Naomi's kindred, and yet as they are among Naomi's kindred, Ruth is going about doing the work. And not only is she going about doing the work, but as the servant that was set over the reapers, the head servant, describes her, he he effectively says this. She came, she asked if she could glean, she's been gleaning, and she's been in the field all day. She's hardly come in to take a break. She's a woman of industry. This woman is working. She's laboring for the good of her household. She's laboring for her mother. So Boaz meets her personally. And his testimony of her is found in verse 11 of Ruth 2. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath, been, it hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knowest not heretofore. And he goes on to describe that uh, the the impression that he has of her in this regard. Ruth had no means by which to expect great rewards for her labor. But since the death of her husband, she remained constant to her husband and her husband's household, to his land, to his mother. She placed herself under her authority. She was loyal to him, to his family, to his people, to his God. This was a faithful woman. So much so that Boaz would say, as we considered last week in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. How did they know that? How did all the city know that she was a virtuous woman? Because they perceived in her the faithfulness, the integrity, the industry, the initiative driven by, the, by her faithfulness to the household of her deceased husband, even in the face of an opportunity to walk away. If there's time, I'd take you to another passage. I'd take you to 1 Samuel 25, and we talk about a woman named Abigail. This woman is described as a woman of good understanding. Her husband is a villain, <laughs> and he puts his house in a poor condition in danger. And yet we find Abigail faithfully working for the benefit of this house, for the benefit of her husband's house, for the protection of her husband, even when her churlish husband uh, got on the wrong side of David's wrath. She delivered him from the consequences of his own poor decisions through her faithfulness, through her wisdom, through her strength, her understanding, her respect, and her integrity. It's worth looking into if you'd like to dig deeper. I'm sure many of our ladies already have. We move on, however, to a second characteristic this evening of the virtuous woman. From Proverbs 31, we saw that the virtuous woman is a faithful woman. Any number of characteristics that go along with that that we could talk about, but I use the word faithful. The second characteristic that we talk about this evening from Titus chapter 2 is that that the, the, the virtuous woman, the biblically feminine woman, is a woman of moral purity. Femininity has been in crisis for some time, but it truly came to a tipping point in our culture in the 60s and 70s when women were convinced that femininity was being hamstrung by the expectation of moral decency and propriety. 
Women began fighting for the right to expose themselves, to bear no consequences for moral sin, to put all of these efforts under the banner of self-worth, self-respect, and female empowerment. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's look at Titus chapter 2's description of young women. In Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says this, that they, that would be the elder women, may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Speaking here of the things which the older women can teach to the younger, we have a list. We considered several of these things in our our message toward wives. And of course, again, we are seeing this taught within the context of wives. This is uh, culturally just the way most elements of biblical femininity are reflected in Scripture. But we find two characteristics here which bubble up to the top of our time together this evening that I did not talk about as it related to wives directly, which is discretion and chastity. That word discreet meaning self-controlled, sound in mind, chastity meaning morally pure. Discretion speaks of prudence, of care, of considering actions and their consequences. Chastity naturally speaks of moral purity. The idea behind these two attributes is that a virtuous woman is a woman who respects herself, who respects her authorities, and who respects God enough to protect herself morally. The virtuous woman understands that God has made men to be attracted to women. And that outside of God's teachings as it relates to women, men's attractions are not by any means pure or upright. This is something that we need that, that, that women need to understand. This is something, fathers, that frankly you need to talk to your, women, your, your daughters about if, if, at, at the appropriate time. The virtuous woman is discreet. And so she has the wisdom to understand that her testimony and her purity are precious, are valuable, are an integral part of what defines her as a biblical woman and are And are thus worthy of protecting. That self-worth and self-respect are not found in being liberated from a testimony of purity, but rather are found in the essence of purity and testimony. It is one of the lies, and we'll talk about a lot of the lies of society here as we continue through this message. One of the great lies of society that they're attempting to push today is they're attempting to remove self-worth, self-dignity, and self-respect from the idea of discretion and purity, chastity. And it, in doing so, they are, they are stripping the very essence of self-worth from itself. And they're creating a paradox. They're creating a contradiction which ends in the ruin of young girls' consciences. Our society is in a place well beyond irony today where women are living out the consequences of an ideology into which they have been duped, seeking to deny those consequences by doubling down on the very actions that spawned them. Women have been duped into, in society into thinking that their freedom and liberation from sexism is tied to their freedom and liberation from a testimony of purity, from discretion, without ever thinking that by 
putting themselves out there in an indiscreet or morally impure way, by acting in ways which are alluring and provocative, they're actually not elevating themselves in the eyes of men. They're degrading themselves in the eyes of men. For decades now, women have been taught this faux term of equality with men that says if men can act in a certain way, then women ought to be able to as well. Why do women have to protect their testimony? Why do women have to be discreet and chaste when men characteristically and historically have not been? And so they throw that out the window and they say, who cares about discretion? Who cares about chastity? We're going to be just like the men. And the men say, good. Do that. That's what we want. Because these women are now degrading themselves and it makes it easier for the men to take advantage of them. Apart from the words of life and of wisdom found in the word of God, it is a man's nature to regard a woman as an object of their pleasure rather than as worthy of dignity and respect. To this end, when a woman asserts her liberation by acting in manners which are open, which are provocative, women are actually degrading themselves in the eyes of men. The lie of feminism says that indiscretion and immoral actions and appearances are giving women equality when in fact they are dehumanizing women at every turn. And this has caused a unique time in our culture where women go out of their way to degrade themselves and then they blame men when men treat them as objects rather than people. Now let's be clear. I'm not saying by any means that a man who would take advantage of a woman is not at fault. Nor am I saying that men have no responsibility to control their own urges and their own passions and their own allurements. But God has created men and women differently. We talk about this as we talk about decency and modesty. We've talked about this in any number of forums before. That God has created men to be naturally vi visual. God has created women to be naturally more sensory in, 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 in allurement. That God has created men to uh, have this natural instinct to dominate his peers, to impress women. Because what women are looking for by God's creation is someone to care for them, someone to protect them. That's that natural... Uh, um, that natural desire or that natural allurement. On the contrary, conversely, men are generally more visual in nature. So when a man is, is struggling with issues of modesty, he's going to be struggling more with trying to draw attention to his actions. When a woman is struggling with modesty, she's going to be struggling more about drawing attention to her, her appearance because that is what attracts men. Because that is how men are built. Now as a man throws himself into the word of God and commits himself to the word of God, his desires change. It's not to say that he doesn't appreciate feminine beauty anymore, but it is to say that he finds this thing called self-control and he assimilates the realities of, say, Proverbs 31.30, favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. And all of a sudden, priorities and desires change. But that's only within Christian circles. That's only within those who are walking in the Spirit. 
Discretion in a woman dictates that men, being as they are, designed by God to appreciate feminine beauty and built with a strong inherent desire for physical pleasure, is going to take what he can get in the world. And when a man sees a woman who's willing to put herself out there or act in a manner that is open and inviting, they're going to take advantage of that. And for, for, for feminism to make that easier on men is just degrading women. And then, of course, for women then to blame men for what they are just makes no sense. To this end, the self-respecting woman is the woman who maintains moral purity, who has the discretion to deport herself in action and in appearance in a way that accounts for the weaknesses of men, protects herself from these things. Society has it all backwards today. If women want men to respect them, then women need to stop presenting themselves as object of desire and begin presenting themselves as women of virtue. And then men begin respecting them. And I note again, this is not by all means the whole problem. I'm not saying women are the problem. Every woman who has interacted with men of the world know that virtuous deportment is by no means enough to protect a woman from the immoral thoughts and desires of a man. As a matter of fact, in many cases, a woman of virtue becomes more alluring target, a more alluring target to the immoral man because he wants to be the man who conquers her. Then he gets bragging rights. This is a major problem among men in society and goes back to what we talked about last week as it relates to biblical masculinity, as it relates to men of integrity and character. But we must acknowledge that this attitude among men, while natural, is not created in a vacuum. There was a time when men were compelled to respect women. And a big part of this was that culture and women in that culture demanded that respect, expected it. As women have yielded this expectation, sacrificing it on the altar of what they call feminine liberation, men have dramatically enjoyed this trend because women are cheapening themselves and are therefore easier to take advantage of, which compels women to degrade themselves all the more to try and get more liberation, and then they blame men all the more for it. And the solution? Well, the Word of God. We need men and women to be men and women of virtue. So again, women, please don't think that I am in any way attempting to give men a pass this evening or to blame women for the actions of men for their evils, for their filthiness, and for their degradation of women. That, that, that's all... Uh, that's all evil. I'm not giving any of that a pass. But when we see this word discreet, the idea of discretion is that you have the wisdom to understand enough about how men think, to understand enough about, uh, about the, the elements of self-worth and self-respect that would compel a man to respect you rather than to see you as an object that you know enough about that to protect yourself from the immoral passions of any number of men that are out there. As we focus on moral purity as a sign of feminine virtue, 
It must be understood that it is incumbent upon women to protect themselves from what you women must understand about the nature of men. Men are bigger, they're stronger, they hold power in society by large. Women are, in this respect, vulnerable, though far less in our society than most societies that have ever existed in the world. Women are by far safer in Western society than probably any other society that's ever existed. The only thing stopping men from pursuing the baser instincts of their sin nature, which has twisted their natural desire for feminine beauty, is the Judeo-Christian principles that undergird masculine decency and honor, biblical masculinity. And as those go by the wayside in our society, our women need to be more discreet, perhaps, than ever. And women, discretion dictates that you know these things and account for them as you determine how you deport yourself, what you wear, how you act toward men. One of the big problems uh, within, within fem- feminism today is they say, why should I have to change my actions just because men are pigs? Because men are pigs. So you need to be careful. You need to be careful. Now, we're not talking about in the church here. Uh, God forbid, you know, by God's grace, the men of this church will treat women as they ought to be treated. By God's grace. But you're not going to be only act, uh, interacting with Christian men, ladies. And God forbid that you would be so ignorant to the way, to, to the way of the world, to the way it is out there, that you would fail at discretion because of the degradation of our culture. Our culture is so degraded. It's it's indescribable. The the tremendous number of young ladies who are yielding their integrity, their virtue through digital mediums today, who are being duped by men for any, uh, any number of reasons into yielding some element of their dignity is just, it, 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 it is indescribable. It's a dangerous, dangerous world out there. And the internet has made it a very dangerous world. Cell phones have made it a very dangerous world. Social media, particularly the new social media for young people, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, these places are wastelands of evil. The amount of... The amount of, of moral degradation on all these platforms is, is just tremendous. Our women need discretion. There's that old, bill, uh, there was a billboard up on 94 for a, a while that said, my little black dress is not your invitation. You get what feminism is saying there, but that's silly. 
If a woman is going to dress in a provocative manner, she should expect provocative attention. Is that, is that, too, much, is that, is that too much to say? It, it is in culture today. That, that kind of thing gets you in trouble today to say that. But simply put, ladies, it may not be fair that you have to guard yourself so carefully. It may not be fair that men are bigger and stronger and that they have the halls of power in society, whatever. We, we know that God has designed men to lead and so we, we see elements of that that are right and that are good as far as it goes, but not when men take advantage of that. And we know that. But simultaneously, it is what it is. And discretion dictates that you see the world for what it is, not for how we wish it could be and you protect yourself. All of these things with an eye to preserve your moral purity and your testimony, the marks of virtue in the eyes that see life through a biblical lens. Women, you need to account for how you deport yourself. What you wear, how you act. You should think about how men might perceive you. Men don't think the way women do, and that's just how God has made us. And you need to know that. Number three, 1 Timothy 2. First, attribute of biblical femininity, faithful. Second, morally pure. Third, modest. You might say, Pastor, why are you repeating yourself? I'm not. Feminine modesty is one of the great mistaught topics of the day. Feminine modesty can indeed, in a limited context, have to do with the tightness, the length of clothing, gaps, uh, shortness of clothing, uh, chastity and discretion. But chastity and discretion, what I call decency, is different from modesty. As I mentioned before, the, the primary element of modesty as it relates to interactions between women and men, because men are visual by nature, is for women to be immodest as it relates to their, uh, their, their physical attire or their, 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 their physical feminine beauty. However, it's not limited to that. The definition of modesty is, uh, of modesty is to divert attention from oneself, immodesty being to seek to draw attention to oneself, which means we can go well beyond just, say, tightness of clothing. And as a matter of fact, as I've mentioned before, as we see it in Scripture, the context within which we see modesty is not necessarily speaking of discretion and chastity. It's not necessarily speaking of decency as it relates to appearance. It's actually speaking more of lavishness. So we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-10. through 10, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which belongeth to women professing godliness with good works. We see this teaching about women begin with in like manner. It's comparing women's modest deportment in relation to public worship to the command that Paul had just given to men that men pray everywhere, that, that men in the, in the context of public worship pray everywhere lifting up holy hands. This was a cultural practice whereby they would raise their palms up and they would lift their hands during times of worship and of prayer. And this is to be done, Paul says, without wrath or doubting, having putting away malice, having putting away anger, having put away disagreement, having put away debate. They unify themselves in prayer. 
So the men are to adorn their public worship with much prayer and unity. The women are to adorn their public worship with much humility and submission. That theme just keeps coming up. And this is the idea of modesty. Modesty at its root is deporting oneself in a manner so as not to draw attention to oneself. And notice what the focus is in this context. That women enter into public worship determined not to draw attention to herself by adorning herself in apparel that reflects shamefacedness and sobriety. The Greek word shamefacedness here is also translated in our Bibles as reverent or reverence. And here, once again, we find a connection back to God's design. That as biblical masculinity is reflected in terms of leadership, biblical femininity is reflected through the lens of submission. Paul gives some examples of what this doesn't look like, focusing in on the cultural instances, not necessarily upon the things that were worn in the day and culture, which did not reflect modesty, but but, uh, rather, as we see here, saying that they should adorn themselves in modest apparel. What shouldn't they have? He mentions an abundance of jewelry, broidered hair, costly clothing. Now, these are not necessarily indicative of things intrinsically that would just draw the attention of men, are they? Typically speaking, if a woman is wearing a great deal of jewelry, broidered hair, and costly apparel, she's trying to one-up the other ladies. At that point, it's a comparison from woman to woman. At that point, it's a, it's a comparison of pride among the ladies. And this is what Paul uses as an example of this. Paul says, if a woman is going to draw attention to herself, let the attention come as a natural extension of her testimony of good works. If people are going to look and say that woman has a reputation, let it not be that that's the wealthy woman. Let it not be that that's the well-dressed woman. Let it be that that's the godly woman. Let that be the element of you that bubbles up. Now, that doesn't mean you can't wear nice clothing. That doesn't mean you can't brush your hair. That doesn't mean you can't make yourself look presentable. But if the thing that people zero in on of you is not your character then discretion dictates that maybe some things need to change. Well, why should I have to change myself simply because... uh, Look, discretion dictates that the thing that ought to bubble up is your character. And this embodies the principle of Proverbs 27.2, Let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. Don't seek for praise. Don't seek for glory. Don't seek for honor. Let others bring that to you. And Paul says the way and, and, and the thing unto which if anyone's going to be, be, be speaking toward you, let it be speaking toward your godliness, your good works. Proverbs 31, woman described in verse 28 as a woman whose children rise up and call her blessed her husband also and he praiseth her it is her godliness it is her integrity it is her work ethic it is her character that bubbles up to the top let it be so women the virtuous woman seeks not to garner the praise and attention that comes from her externalities but rather seeks unto good works 
And in these things, she, not only does she seek that as it relates to the Lord, but she finds in those things her worth, her praise, her virtue, so that when there is a situation that would threaten those things in her, it would be rebuffed. And in this, she reflects a strength of character, not weakness as the world would have one to believe. This is not women just giving in to the man. This is a woman protecting herself. This is a woman elevating what truly matters in the eyes of God. Like with biblical masculinity, we find the virtuous woman exhibiting femininity and the final attribute that I would like us to see as we talk through this is the attribute of meekness. We talked about meekness as it relates to men. Now we talk about meekness as it relates to women. We've spoken of meekness often. We define it regularly. Strength under control, right? Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is when my strength, my character, my capacities, and my abilities are harnessed, controlled, and directed toward fitting ends. This encapsulates the Titus 2 idea of discretion and sober-mindedness. The the woman who is protecting herself morally, the woman who is discreet, this is not a woman who is weak. This is not a woman who can't handle herself. This is a woman who, because of her discretion, because of her strength of character, she is deporting herself in a manner that is protecting herself and others. The modest woman is not a woman who is weak simply because she's unwilling to display herself in lavishness, draw attention to herself. This is a woman who is taking the capacities and the strengths that she has and she is directing them toward good works, not toward all of her external trappings, not toward making sure she looks really well put together, but rather she is putting herself, her strength and her time and her effort and her priorities on her character. That's not weakness. That's not weakness. This is meekness. And once again, we return to Proverbs 31. We find this apt description of that virtuous woman there. Verses 25 to 27. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. A woman clothed in strength, directed unto honor, unto wisdom, unto industry. As we have made clear in so many contexts, women are not inferior, weak, or incapable. But women and men are different by design. A man must harness his strength and divert it toward honor, self-sacrifice, yieldedness, and leadership, and provision, and protection, not just of his family if he has one, but of society, of church. A woman must harness her strength and divert it toward honor, self-sacrifice, and yieldedness. She directs her communication unto wisdom and kindness. She works hard for those she loves. Society says that meekness is a sign of weakness, and especially in women. Especially in women, because they, they see women as naturally being held down by a patriarchal society. That the woman of modesty... That the woman who exhibits shamefacedness, respect, reverence, 
that the woman has a meek and quiet spirit, that these reflect a woman being held down by the man. Ladies, God does not see it this way. God does not see it this way. In fact, the very attributes that society gives to, quote, strong women. In the last election, one of the slogans, the future is female, right? That was one of the big slogans. The future is female. Bold women, loud and proud women, women willing to speak their mind, shout to be heard women. These attributes of women given by society, given by feminism as the strong woman. These are the very attributes which the Bible says are repugnant and dangerous in women. And it counsels people to stay very far away from these kinds of women. Proverbs 21.9 It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a white house. Proverbs 21.19 it is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. The woman ready to argue. The woman intent on having her way, speaking her mind and being heard. Bend circumstances to her will. Take everything under her control and drag it across the finish line. Better to just go live in the wilderness than to go live with her. Proverbs 25, 24. It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. We've seen that one already. Proverbs 27, 15. A continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. A contentious woman like a leaky faucet. It's really annoying, right? You hear the drip, drip, drip. I got myself into trouble a couple weeks ago because we finally stopped that running toilet in the apartment. And it ended up becoming quite a project. But I was just sick of the running toilet. It just gets old after a while hearing the toilet run, right? And then it kicks in. And, oh, okay. It just needs to stop. You hear it. You're just working. And then you hear it. And it's just, ugh. got to stop that running toilet. That's the idea. That's obnoxious. It's terrible. It's grating. It can become just really, really, really annoying. That's the idea. You hear her. She knows it. You're putting up with it. But over time, it just keeps dripping. And soon you can't stand it. She gets what she wants and she knows that she's going to get what she wants because she's dripping all the time. Society says submission is a sign of weakness, women. Culture respects women who look to the needs of others above her own, but only as an extension of her autonomy. Never as an extension of her submission. That's been lost. But the woman who understands God, God's word and loves God's way is seeking, for the, is, is, is seeking for the approval of God, not of culture and society. We're going to talk about this more next, not next week because we have our song time, but in two weeks when we talk about purpose, we have a crisis of purpose in this country today. And it's because particularly young people are seeking meaning in anything and everything other than in anything that matters. Tremendous crisis. We're going to talk, so we'll talk more about this idea. Young ladies seeking meaning and purpose in the validation of men who simply are looking for an object for their lust. Happens all the time. 
The woman who understands God's word and loves God's way is not seeking for the approval of culture and society. Much to the contrary, the virtuous woman has directed her thoughts, her priorities, her sense of self-worth, her efforts toward one end, and unto one end will she strive. And you know this verse. I've quoted the verse already. It is to this end that she strives. Proverbs 31.30 Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Women, don't allow society, culture, philosophy, whatever it might be, peer pressure, what the other girls are doing, whatever it is, don't allow your worth to be rooted. Don't allow your actions, don't allow your feeling of what you ought to do be rooted in some carnal expectation of you. Well, the guys expect a girl to act in this certain way or to laugh at their dumb jokes or whatever it might be, so I have to do it too. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to. You don't need, you don't need their validation. You don't. There's only one person whose validation should matter, and that's God's. And by God's grace, that should mean your parents too. And anyone else in a biblical circle who loves and cares for you should, be, should, should validate you in the things which God loves. Don't allow society, culture, philosophy to convince you that your worth is, root, is rooted only in your beauty, whether it be natural beauty or by conforming to some fashion, some outward standard, whatever it might be. Don't allow society, culture, philosophy to convince you that your worth is rooted in how others think of you. Whether people like you, whether they think you're attractive or funny or engaging, flirty, whatever it might be, don't allow your worth to be rooted in any of that. Find your worth in Christ. Find your value in the things that God values. And this won't make you popular. This won't make you the life of the party. This won't cause a line of men to gather on your front door. This will cause culture to see you as a part of the problem rather than a part of the solution. But if God be pleased, what does any of that matter? Who cares what other thinks if God is pleased? And that leads us to one more passage on which we close this evening. We spoke about it in Sunday school this morning. And it kind of encapsulates everything we've talked about from 1 Peter chapter 3. Speaking again specifically to wives, but we don't see many, many of these attributes are not just wife attributes. It's just that it's directing these attributes toward a husband. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating of hair, and of the wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. Chaste conversation, conversation being deportment, the manner in which you live your life. Chaste conversation coupled with fear. That's a woman of moral purity. Adorning of a meek and quiet spirit rather than, in, that, than the priority being on the outward adorning of the plating of hair or wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. This is not what should define you. 
should not be what people think of when they think of you. Your outward appearance doesn't need to detract from the beauty uh, that you have or, or any of the, anything of the sort. But it also should not detract from your love for the Lord and the hidden man of the heart. A godly woman is ornamented with a spirit of meekness and quietness, of shamefacedness that exudes confidence, not in herself, but in the Lord who is her God. And this, Peter writes, in the sight of the Lord is of great price. Or as Proverbs 31 says, a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Women, the principles that we consider today in almost every way are the exact opposite of everything that society teaches women. And it has put women into a very difficult spot in society where they long to be treated as more than just objects while simultaneously are being led deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole of that very thing. Just presenting themselves as little more than objects. Society is lying to our young women deceiving them in regard to what really matters, what is important, and how to achieve the goal of being loved and respected among their peers and among their strangers alike. Women, you have worth because you are made in the image of God. Your worth grows as you submit to God's design, and you will find in this the ultimate of personal satisfaction because you will find in this the pleasure of God. Don't allow society or culture to strip from you this joy. Don't allow the lies of feminism or female empowerment, independence and autonomy to strip from you the glory of living in the way that God has created you to live. Women are worthy of respect, care, honor, but these are only magnified as women themselves respect themselves respect themselves enough to live in discretion, chastity, guarding your testimony, guarding your dignity, finding your worth not in your looks or your relationship status or your prospects or your acceptance or whatever society wants to place upon women this week, but pleasing the Lord by being a woman who fears the Lord, who wears around with her the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, who is adorned not with the outward things of this life, but who is adorned as becomes women of godliness with good works. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.